Bye-bye, Mr. Riley. Great opportunity to worship through song this morning. We praise the Lord for the praise team and for our congregational singing, very theologically sound choruses and, uh, and hymns that praise the Ancient of Days, taken from the book of Daniel. So it is old, but not as old as the Ancient of Days. <clears throat> So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning and along with that congregation turn with me actually to Luke 15 to begin with. We will look at passages in Luke 18 and 19. If you are joining us for the first time, a reminder that we preach and teach expositionally at Flat Creek. We've done so now for better than 25 years, preaching through a number of books. We are taking a hiatus. We're we're presently in 1 Peter, but we are taking a hiatus from 1 Peter to look at a series of uh, uh, Advent messages. And, of course, we've drifted into January, but that's okay. And uh, we're focusing on the controversial Christ. Um, Christmas, of course, gets uh, a great deal of emphasis not only from the redeemed world, but also the unredeemed world. And so we need to have our minds um, filtered by the Word of God to understand that Christ was controversial. And we are looking at uh, two parables and a, and a, uh, a factual circumstance in Luke 15, 18, and then, of course, in, in chapter 19, Jesus and Zacchaeus. Um, and focusing on this morning, the Living Word's initiative. We have looked at the world interrupted. We've talked about God's authority. We have examined the words interrogation. We've talked about God's truth. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the words initiative, which is salvation. Now, I'm going to read uh, one or two verses from each passage, and then we'll pray and begin to look at the message this morning. In Luke chapter 15, look at verse 17. This is the parable of the prodigal. It is a beautiful, beautiful parable. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Luke 18, turn over there. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other uh, men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Luke 19. This is a factual circumstance. The first two are parables. This is an event that Luke records that actually happened. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Remember, look back across the page, verse 2, Luke goes to links to remind us that Zacchaeus was rich. The parable of the prodigal is a parable about a rich father and two sons. And the two men in Luke 18 were men of means. Pharisees were typically had some wealth or some means, and tax collectors obviously did. So remember that. We tend to focus on the down and outers, and we should, but there are also some up and outers, and we forget that. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's go to God's throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are the Ancient of Days. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday as the Ancient of Days, today as the Ancient of Days, and forever as the Ancient of Days. And so, as the Ancient of Days, Teach us where we are ignorant this morning. Forgive us where we are sinful. And make us like the Ancient of Days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. <clears throat> so we've, we took some time previously to talk about truth and authority. God's truth and God's authority both of which are indispensable to salvation. And they necessarily, because it's God's truth and God's authority, they necessarily bring conflict to all sinners of all time. There's never been a sinner that's been saved that did not have a spiritual conflict of some nature. Authority addresses, <clears throat> how can I write myself with a holy, eternal God? And truth addresses, how do I know what to believe? Our response, we talked about this last week, is limited in two crucial elements. Number one, the element of the mind. Because we're finite, so how can I know God? And secondly, the element of our character. We're sinners. How can I meet a holy God? So these two limitations, and all of us have these, all of us suffer from these, our mind and our character, assume that someone has to take the initiative to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How can I know what is true is addressed by this book? 
It's addressed by the living word, Jesus Christ, contained in this book. In other words, because God has said something, we can know what's true. By what means can my sinful character be forgiven so that I can be saved, so that I can be delivered, so that I could be, can be brought back home to be with God? Salvation means to be brought safely back home. And that is addressed by the fact that God has done something. God said something, and what he said, he did. Next slide. Now, this is seen vividly in Luke's gospel. We've just read a portion of these, each of these particular uh, passages of Scripture. If we took the time, we would read in Luke 15, verses 14 through 24, which is the, uh, the verbiage, the teaching of the parable about the prodigal. That's not all of the parable, by the way. And we'll look at that later on. But the prodigal symbolizes Adam and Eve, and it symbolizes you and I. He symbolizes you and I. We turn our backs on God. That's what Adam and Eve did. We leave our happy, safe home. We are determined to be like God. Here the prodigal was determined to be like his father, even though at, uh, initially he detested his father. In Luke 18... Jesus says about the tax collector, I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. And as we'll see, justification is essential to salvation. In Luke 19, we've read, and Jesus said to him, today salvation, soteria is the word, again, to be at home with, has come to this house. Interesting, Jesus there's a play on words here. Salvation to Zacchaeus' home because he too is a son of Abraham. What we see here is the prodigal does return. The tax collector goes home justified. And salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. So these three, these two parables and the actual event that take place here, this is... Jesus' teaching of his Father's initiative to save and the fact that he became incarnate to save. Now, Scripture's word for the divine initiative is grace. And grace is God's love to unknowing and undeserving sinners. Grace is love that stops, it stoops, and it rescues sinners. It brings them back home. The first part of Luke 15, you have the parable of the 99, the shepherd that goes out looking for one. And so if you begin in Luke 15 and you go through Luke 19, when Jesus says, but the Son of Man has come to seek and save and the lost, all those parables roll up to that one sentence. Grace is always via the divine initiative. It's an encounter with a virgin-born babe who was the vicariously suffering Savior. Now, this is where we stopped last week. Salvation is not just another word for forgiveness. There's quite a bit more that's encompassed 
in being born again. There are three phases of God's purpose in redemption. Next slide, if you would, brother. And this has to do, we talked, uh, the Spirit of God worked out that uh, the, um, the praise team would sing the Ancient of Days. Well, this references back to the Ancient of Days. Phase one is our deliverance. That's in the past. The word that is used not only here by Jesus, but throughout the New Testament. It is endemic to the New Testament, is the word justification. So, in the past, those of us that are born again, those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior, we have been delivered from our guilt, from our sin. And we've also been delivered, we spent a couple of Sundays focusing on this as well, from the judgment of our sins. For that judgment is placed on Jesus. So, we have received a free and full forgiveness. Now, salvation is free, but it is not without cost. Not only that, but we have been reconciled back to God, and we have been adopted as his children because of the work of Jesus Christ. Phase two is liberation from the present. The Bible refers to this as sanctification. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been justified, you have been made right with God, the unrighteous made righteous. We'll look at that as we move through the passages this morning. But we also are being sanctified. We're being made like Christ. We've been liberated from sin's ability to drag us down, and God, we know how it drags us down. And this liberation begins at the new birth, what Jesus referred to as being born again. And it continues with transformation by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. It will not be culminated until phase three, which is our final deliverance from our fallen nature when Jesus returns. This is the future. This is our glorification. We are gifted with new bodies. When we pass from this life to the life that is to come, our mortal body remains. When Jesus returns, our mortal our, uh, spirits are reunited with resurrected bodies, but not until. The book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to some extent, addresses this. We're gifted with new bodies, and we're transported to be at home with Him forever. To be saved, to have the fruits of salvation made real to us. Now, salvation cannot be obtained without justification. You and I are not saved without being justified. Go back to verse 14 of chapter 18. When we preached through the book of Romans, we spent quite a bit of time, and I hope you took extensive notes. I know all of you did. And if not, those messages are online and you can go back and listen to those but justification is essential to salvation and in verse 14 Jesus himself said I tell you this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other so God makes a distinction 
Well, preacher, everyone's saved. You think? Is that what Jesus said? There's a confrontation here. Confrontation between the righteous and the humbly depraved tax collector. The confrontation begins in this parable with Jesus' intentional choice of the word. This man went home. The word justified here means right with God. Pharisee, not so much. Now, the Pharisee did all the right things. But pride kept him from humbling himself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many ways to define justification. We've spent quite a bit of time on it. But a good way to ponder justification is to focus on its antonym, which is condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8.1 says, for those that are in Christ. Why? Because of our justification. Now the Old Testament judges, of which this Pharisee in chapter 18 would have been very familiar with, the Old Testament judges were to condemn the wicked and justify the righteous. This particular passage is found in the book of Exodus that we're studying on Sunday evening, to pronounce the innocent not guilty and the condemned guilty. And that's what, we, that's what we could hope for in our own legal system, in our nation, which is supposed to be a nation of laws. That's what we hope for. Proverbs 17, acquitting the guilty and condemning the righteous both are detestable to the Lord. Calling good evil and evil good are detestable. They are abominable, that's an old English word, to the Lord. They are not acceptable to the Lord. And they should not be acceptable to us, for those of us that claim Jesus as Savior. Next slide. <clears throat> Now, in this particular passage, this parable, so look at verse 6 of chapter 18. There's a, the parable of the woman and the judge. The Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Okay, this is an unsaved, unrighteous judge. But he makes a determined judgment. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, though he's patient? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And then he spoke that parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men, and I mentioned this last Sunday, they went up to the temple to pray. They were not outside the temple. They were not in their workplace. They were not in their schools. They were not at home. They went to where they were supposed to be. That's important. Gordon was teaching this morning the book of Colossians and in chapter 1 where it says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church. So rejection of the church is rejection of the body of Christ. As I said, God's very digital. Own all. So the Pharisees were appalled that Christ would use the word 
justified to define someone as wretched as a tax collector. Now, one of Christ's disciples was a tax collector, and the name of that disciple was Matthew. What's his Hebrew name? Do you know? Get extra points if you know. Levi, yes. But Christ welcomed him into his inner circle, and we have a gospel written by the wretched, unrighteous, depraved tax collector, changed by the grace of God. We don't have a gospel written by this Pharisee. Paul would write in Romans, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, Every one of us born again this morning are in that category. We were ungodly, and yet we've been made right with God. His faith is counted as righteousness. It speaks, if you go back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, it speaks of Abraham. And Abraham was not saved by works. I read all over the Internet sometimes, oh, the Old Testament is a dispensation of works. It is not. It is not. It's the dispensation of the grace of God which began in the Garden of Eden. Jesus himself bore out that fact. Romans 4 bears that fact out. So there's a question about salvation. We'll spend the rest of this morning addressing this. Is God's initiative to save due to his mercy or is it due to our merit? Because the Pharisees did a lot of things right. But their focus was not on mercy. Their focus was on merit. The elder brother in the parable of the prodigal did a lot of things right. But his focus was not on mercy. His focus was on his merit. And the crowd in Luke 19, which consisted of, by the way, the disciples, got a lot of things right. But they missed that the Son of Man had come to seek and save the lost. Is God's initiative to save due to mercy? Well, turn with me back to chapter 15. We've already read twice in this passage in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And likewise in verse 21, <clears throat> Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So twice the prodigal cited his sinner's nature. And he, this didn't arrive at it didn't. When he left his father, he had no thoughts of that. Eat, drink, and be merry. But something happened. And what happened was the Spirit of God brought him to the lowest place in his life so that he recognized who he was before God and his father. Has the Spirit of God done that for you? That is God's grace. 
Well, preacher, I don't like to be crushed in spirit. I don't either. And as we see this morning, there's a lot of, a lot of um, objection to God's mercy. So he cited his sin nature twice, and he realized that he had offended his father. Remember when we started this, this, uh, uh, this series of messages on the Living Words Initiative that I mentioned that there are those that offend, and then there are those that are offended, and those that offend are you and I. They're the prodigal. We offend God. The one that is offended is the Trinity. So he recognizes. He recognized that he had offended his father. Now here's a miraculous thing, or a beautiful thing here. This young man basically asks for an inheritance. In fact, in, in, and you've heard me preach about this before, but in that particular day and time, for anyone to ask of the inheritance before the passing of the father was basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate of the fruit. Basically saying, I wish I did not know God because I want to be God. So this young man was initially sick of home. You ever been sick of home? Some of you young people, I can remember being sick of home. I'm sick of this and I'm sick of you. All God's people said, yeah, don't say it too loudly because somebody may be watching you. Sick of home. But when he arose and came to his senses, he recognized he was homesick. That's what salvation is. When sinners come to an understanding of their sin before God, their being sick of God is delightfully changed by the Spirit of God and grace into being homesick for God. Is that where you are this morning? Look at verse 28. Now we have some startling differences here. Verse 28. This is the older brother. <clears throat> He's just been told that his brother has returned and his father has received him. Safe and sound. That's salvation. Your father's killed a fatted calf. He wants a party. Party. He wants a party. But he was angry. What does self-righteousness do? What does self-righteousness in us do? It makes us angry. He was angry. And would not go in. The father seeks both sons. He seeks the prodigal. And in verse 28, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. He came to his elder brother. That's grace. And so he answered and said to his father, look, look, I have worked my fingers to the bone and all I have, 
All I have to show for it are bony fingers. And you don't care about me. You have used me for everything you could to make yourself rich and then to give that to my younger brother who hates you. You never gave me a young goat. Not even a young goat. You've killed a fatty calf and I don't even get a goat. That is unfair. Think human nature changes? Shake your head like this. No, does not. He said, I couldn't share it with my friends as soon as this son of yours. He didn't say his brother. This son of yours. He's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. He's come back and you're a hypocrite because you've accepted him. He's devoured your livelihood, what you gave him with harlots, and you killed the fatty calf for him. How despicable is that? That's human nature. I've done everything you asked me to do. Why are you taking this despicable son of yours back? The father showed mercy, and he showed grace to the prodigal, but the thing is he showed mercy and grace to the elder brother as well. Look at chapter 18. Verse 11, we've read this. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. In other words, God's not listening. It was, it was um, a barbarous sound. Bar, 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 bar. The Romans called the barbarians. They named them barbarians because when they heard them talk, they couldn't intelligibly understand what they were saying, so they called them the barbars. So now we refer to them as barbarians. So here the Pharisee is just talking to himself, bar, 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 bar. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I don't extort. What do the tax collectors do? They extort it. So he's looking and watching the tax collector. I'm not, I don't extort. He said, I'm not unjust. This tax collector has been unjust. And I'm not an adulterer. Now, we don't know that about the tax collector, but that's the assumption that the Pharisee made. Now, the interesting thing is he lied. He did extort. He was unjust. And certainly, he committed adultery in his heart, which the Word says, and Jesus said, makes you an adulterer. And then he says, I fast twice a week, which was a good thing. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, applauded people that did that, and he said, I give tithes of all that I possess. And then it stops. My merit is great. So the Pharisee appealed to justice based on his supposed merit, his alleged merit, while the tax collector appealed to mercy alone. And we see that in verse 13. Now look over at chapter 19. <coughs> it 
Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your home, at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, this is the crowd now, when they saw it, they all complained. He's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Isn't that what Jesus would say in verse 10? I've come to seek and save sinners. So they missed the initiative of God. And the crowd here all complained that Jesus, and this is the fact of Jesus walking through Jericho and meeting the tax collector Zacchaeus, Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus. Next slide. Turn back for a moment chapter 18. I want to show you something here. So we have this parable, and it talks about the tax collector and so forth. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. So this actual event that takes place follows this parable that Jesus had taught to the crowd and to his disciples. And the disciples, Luke says, rebuked those that brought humble children to Jesus. You see, the disciples had not yet learned that the humble dependence of, of children was essential to acceptance with God. Some of us this morning haven't learned that. Jesus distinguished between the boasting of the Pharisee in the previous parable and the humility of the tax collector and the children, the infants. Human merit does not exist in God's mind. If it did, there would be no grace. Past or present virtues do not displace the humility of desperate sinners. You see, salvation is not ours by doing, working, or boasting. Salvation is by receiving and believing by faith. And neither the elder brother, nor the Pharisee, nor the crowd, now thankfully the disciples, all but Judas, came to faith. This was found in hymns of old. We sing some beautiful hymns here and some beautiful choruses, but I will give you three examples here. One entitled, Lord, I Deserve Thy Deepest Wrath, written by Basil Manley, who, if you know anything about Southern Baptist history, was one of the uh, great teachers at Southern uh, Baptist Seminary many, many years ago in the 19th century from Alabama, pastored in Alabama, Spent some time here in Virginia, as a matter of fact, and he wrote 
um, him entitled, Lord, I deserve thy deepest wrath. And in this, he wrote this, Lord, I deserve your deepest wrath. Ungrateful, faithless I have been. No terrors have my soul deterred, nor goodness wooed me from my sin. My heart is vile, my mind depraved, my flesh rebels against your will. I am polluted in your sight, yet, Lord, have mercy on me still. Good old Southern Baptist. Isaac Watts, 1707, in a beautiful hymn, how sad our state by nature is, is the title of the hymn. And he starts by saying, how sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. And then Charles Wesley and Jesus, lover of my soul. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, and lead the blind. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Has God changed? Is our sin today more palatable with God than it was when these men wrote these hymns? Is it more palatable than it was when Jesus himself walked the earth? You see, mercy reigns supreme in these hymns. They understood God's mercy. Mercy depletes our merit. It leaves all, as Jesus stated in Matthew 23, speaking of the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly. But inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, I didn't make this up. Next slide. God gives us not only mercy, which is not getting what we deserve, but obviously he gives us grace in Jesus Christ, which is getting what merit can never achieve. Only Jesus and him crucified. Because what Christ came to do was to put away our sins and to die. The significance of his death elevates the cross through history. It was on the cross that he bore our sins, paying God the Father's penalty with his own blood. It was on the cross he died so that we might have eternal life. It was on the cross that he, made a, that was, he was made a curse for us that we may inherit any blessings at all. I'm so blessed, not without the cross. It was on Calvary that he endured our condemnation, the antonym for justification. He endured our condemnation 
so that our desecration of God's glorious image, we may be justified. And this can happen for all who echo the prodigal's prayer, the tax collector's prayer, and Zacchaeus' humility. Now, this is beautifully seen in the ordinance of baptism. What do folk that submit to baptism do? They don't do anything. Instead, something is done to them. As they submit, and that's what baptism is, submitting to the obedience of Christ's command. They are plunged beneath the water as passive recipients. Next slide. Submission is the key here. When we talk about authority and truth, it's submission. Submission to Christ's command has been the, the same since Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. What Jesus said in the Great Commission, Peter echoed when he preached on the day of Pentecost. And that's what I preach today. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. The Christian ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We will observe the Lord's Supper next Sunday. They are means of grace that display God's mercy. Baptism is the passive ordinance where we actually do nothing but submit to his command. And the Lord's Supper is, is our display of an active participation in receiving. We submit, we receive. Receiving the Lord Jesus. The body and the blood, the bread and the wine which represents, of course, the suffering of the Lord Jesus. We receive because we believe. Jesus is the sole giver of forgiveness. And he's the sole giver of the Holy Spirit. I will send you a comforter. Mercy is dispensed to those that have in faith alone humbly received our Savior. If God accepted our merit, any worship would be acceptable. We hopefully, we'll begin next Sunday looking and focusing on worship. But we are not invited to worship the Lord in our natural, unsaved state. Because we have nothing to offer. Until we receive both Christ and his gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember Adam and Eve? Next slide. They sinned, they went and hid themselves from God. God calls them, they come out and they begin to blame each other. Eve blames the serpent, Adam blames, the, blames Eve, and then he also blames God, the woman that you gave me. You made me like this. So what we see here is that in, this, in the beautiful thing that happens in the submission of baptism and the partaking of 
the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that there is no human merit. Is salvation of human merit? Well, this is one of the great controversies that Jesus came to control, to confront, rather. There are four objections, and we'll cover these rapidly. Four objections to mercy, and you, I've heard them, and you no doubt if you've shared your faith any at all, you've heard them too. All this emphasis out on the guilt of sin and our depravity is dishonest. How can I substitute my prayer for that of the tax collector? I'm not such a person. I'm like the Pharisee. It's just spurious words of disinformation from the ancient past. And Lord, we are absolutely inundated with disinformation today, especially about God's Word. Right here. This is a pinnacle of disinformation. My truth is that we are more enlightened today than the results of our genetics and science. Well, the point is, if I can't see myself as the prodigal and as these tax collectors, I'm simply like the Pharisee. Humility is the truth because the truth agrees with Scripture. We know much of what we read or say, especially on the Internet, is disinformation. However, because we are not omniscient, we don't know everything, we often do not know what to believe. And because of the fear of getting it wrong, there's little room for the Holy Spirit to Convict and convince sinners of sin because we assume there's so much information the Bible is dishonest too. Hmm. But when the Spirit does convict sinners with the truth, it's an accurate judgment of who I am. That's grace. It's not a pretense. And we need to see ourselves as the tax collectors and the prodigal did here, as God sees us, that we are defiant of his authority and truth, that we rebel against his love. His, we are self-centered and we're proud. But when we do, we will hear the prayer of both tax collectors, which is an honest prayer. It's not dishonest, but painfully and sweetfully. Honest. Next slide. So the first one is dishonesty. Second one is depressing. Had a man a number of years ago. So when you, you guys deal too much with sin, it's very depressing. The gospel is good news. There has to be some bad news for there to be some good news. It may be dishonest to identify with the prodigal and the tax collector, but it isn't healthy. And it isn't enlightened. All Christians do is wallow in sin with a morose focus on the world going to hell in a handbasket, whatever that means. On the contrary, we're to take sin seriously because it is serious. It asserts self against the Trinity. That's what we see in these two parables, especially God the Son. 
It also asserts self against the neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Zacchaeus understood this more than the Pharisees. If sin required the death of God's Son, then it must be insidious indeed. Has to be. The third thing is all this emphasis on salvation is unjust. If salvation is a mercy alone, irrespective of human merit, then God is simply not fair. Which the mortal saying to the creator, the creature saying to the creator, you're not fair. Ha! The Pharisee did the deeds required of the law. And the tax collectors apparently did not. How then can Jesus declare the tax collector righteous when he wasn't? This is a miscarriage of justice. It is totally unfair. I've been coming to this church for eons of eternity as my mom and dad, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, even my dog sometimes come. It's unfair. Next slide. Our outward righteousness is not God's righteousness. And yes, neither of these men loved God. As required in the Shema, and they did not love their neighbor as themselves. That's not the point. But only the prodigal and the tax collectors owned up to God's authority and truth. They understood the Father's initiative. They alone cried for mercy. And fourthly, if all this emphasis on salvation by mercy is amoral, sinners saved in mercy means that God does not consider who they are and what they do to, once they're saved. So they, they can live any way they choose. If salvation is in mercy by grace alone without merit, why don't we continue to sin? Why do we, uh, yeah, don't we continue to sin and that grace may increase? That's what Romans 6 says. How then shall we say, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin because of the cross live any longer? Next slide. Christ's death was a death to sin. Believers are not to allow the reign of sin in our bodies. We're not saved by good works, but once saved, good works follow, counting church attendance. They are the evidence of Christ in you, the hope of glory. James said, well, someone will say of you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Salvation is in Christ alone, by his grace alone, through gifted faith alone, and stated in the word of God alone. To God be the glory. Now this may be humbling, and in fact it is. And in fact it is fact. It's the authority and truth of God's initiative. It wounds our pride, as it did for the elder brother and the Pharisee in the temple 
and the crowd. It makes them, it made them, and it makes us angry. It's a stumbling block, and it remains controversial. The divine initiative in Christ was the cross from which flows a free salvation. Yeah, lip service is made to mercy, but it's seldom preached. Even those that teach God's mercy inevitably emphasize his mercy must be earned. But as Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today, salvation has come to your house. And all can be like the prodigal and be safe at home. The tax collector in Luke 18 who smote his breast and Zacchaeus. We can all return safely home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the divine initiative. The mystery within mysteries. But the truth is that all we need do to receive Jesus is call out to him in repentance and ask in faith to receive Jesus Christ. And he alone in mercy and grace will save. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service this morning. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> We will sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning. If you're here today, uh, perhaps you're listening and watching via the internet, you do not know the Lord as your Savior, our prayer is that you would humbly call out to him in repentance, say, I recognize that I am a sinner, far, far greater sinner than you can ever imagine, but I know that you are a greater Savior than I can ever imagine. And in faith, Jesus himself, receive him as Savior and be born again today. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not certain that heaven is your home, that Jesus is your Savior, and if Jesus is not your Savior, heaven is not your home. We talked yesterday with, with Harry Orr and, and Robin. Robin was there when we talked with him about uh, Gladys' conversion in a small church in um, Gretna, Virginia. She moved her membership here when, um, when uh, Harry got out of the Air Force. A testimony that something happened in her life. Have you had that encounter? Do you understand the Living Words Initiative? We can't save you. With an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And you can leave here today with that assurance. So as we sing, if the Lord's spoken, won't you make your way out of the pew? As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, either by statement of faith, 
transfer of letter. Perhaps you need to follow the Lord and believe his baptism. Submit to his command. We encourage you to do that this morning. As a child of God, it's important that we remember to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's what Jesus started to do in Luke 9 and then preaches all the way through to Luke 22 when he is betrayed. What number, Brother Vance? 